from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. The Fed raises rates as GDP declines for a second quarter in a row, but is a recession guaranteed? These are some idiosyncrasies that, that could be messing with the economic data that we're seeing that we would normally say, hey, this is a sure thing for a recession. Why weather since soybean prices soaring this week? You come in here and you get 100 to 110, 110 plus temperatures over the next uh, couple of weeks. You know, the first 10 days of August are predicted to be brutal. But it's a dire drought situation eating into outlooks across the largest cotton patch in the U.S. We don't have an acre of dry land left. It's all been uh, failed out. Most of it never even sprouted. As losses could be in the billions, we tell you why the historic drought could leave scars that last a lifetime. And in John's world, Dutch farmer protests. Now for the news, a day after the Fed decided to raise rates, data showed U.S. GDP contracted for the second straight quarter. But one economist says a recession isn't guaranteed. U.S. gross domestic product shrank 0.9 percent, signaling a weakening economy due to slowing consumer spending. Business investment also declined. But just a day prior, the Fed made another major rate hike, raising interest rates by three quarters of a point for a second time. The Fed's aggressive move is aimed at avoiding a recession. But one ag economist says even with the dip in GDP, a recession is not guaranteed. Well, I think you look at the employment figures. So right now you see very strong numbers coming out of things like unemployment, job availability, all those sorts of things still show uh, incredibly strong signs. You also have things like imports and exports doing strange things because of supply chain disruptions, as well as the strength of the dollar really pushing back on U.S. exports. So those two things combined say, hey, these are some idiosyncrasies that, that could be messing with the economic data that we're seeing that we would normally say, hey, this is a sure thing for a recession. Uh, they're a little bit different this time around, and every recession is different. I'll say that. Well, in a surprise move Wednesday, the Senate reached a deal on a historic climate, health care, and tax proposal. But it comes with a name change, as they said the proposal is designed to fight inflation. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia changed his stance on the extensive proposal, striking a deal with fellow Democrats in the Senate. It's not being called Build Back Better, but instead Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. The proposal includes billions in new spending, including nearly $370 billion in energy security and climate change programs over a decade. It also includes $20 billion to support climate smart ag practices and a sustainable aviation fuel tax credit. The deal still needs to secure support in the House. We have all the details about the proposal on agweb.com. Well, rising inflation forced USDA to raise its consumer food price index this week, but there is a bit of good news for 2023. USDA says food at home prices, or what you pay at the grocery store, those prices are projected to increase between 10 and 11 percent this year, with meats and dairy expected to jump more than that. Next year, though, food at home prices should only increase between 2 and 3 percent, according to USDA's latest forecast. But eating out could continue to come at a higher cost. Food away from home prices are forecast to rise 6.5 to 7.5 percent this year and 3 to 4 percent next year. Well, operations at the third busiest port on the West Coast are back up and running after protests caused a blockade. But there are concerns about what the backlog will mean for meat exports. 
Cargo containers started moving again at the Port of Oakland this week. Independent truck drivers protesting a new state law had nearly shut down business operations there for almost a week. But considering nearly 66% of beef exports to Japan go through that port and 70% of pork exports to Japan, it could take a while to chew through that backlog. If you look at the overall impact on the ag commodity groups, everything from from fruit and produce to meat and everything in between uh, and all the associated industries that go with that, um, the economic impact of, of this situation in Oakland going on for any length of time is just monumental. So all the more reason that uh, we need to push the state of California and, uh, and the appropriate parties to get this resolved as soon as possible. Well, Russia targeted Ukraine's southern Black Sea region ports multiple times last week. That's despite an agreement to allow grain exports from Ukraine to resume. The first confirmed missile strike came a week ago in Odessa. Then Tuesday, Russia targeted that port along with another location in a second attack. Now, despite that, the first Ukraine grain exports for this week were still planned. Turkish officials said all the details had been worked out for a safe route for ships. But the recent attacks are casting doubt on if all the grain under that paper agreement will actually get shipped. That's it for the news. Well, some intense storms pushed across the country this week, causing damage and flooding, but it's the resurgence of extreme heat that we're watching as we head into August. We'll have a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Yurisovic next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Enzone from Farm Shop MFG, which allows you to rehydrate your soybeans from 10 to 13 percent. On a 20,000 bushel bin, that's an extra semi-load added to your bottom line. Order your Enzone fan by July 31st and get $200 off. Time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Urasovic. Matt, it looks like August is shaping up to be a hot one, and the commodity markets definitely noticed that this week. But is this still due to that shifting ridge of high pressure that created the dome of high heat over the western Corn Belt and Plains a couple weeks ago? Yeah, time more of that high heat and humidity expected across the middle of the country as we head through this upcoming week. And that's not going to go anywhere. That ridge is going to stay strong, and we'll take a look at that in just a second. But here's a look at the updated drought monitor. Still some uh, areas up in the northeast and along the east coast abnormally dry. Right through the Corn Belt, though, we've seen some relief from some of those drought conditions. Still seeing that expanding drought, though, for Oklahoma, parts of Kansas, even to southern Missouri and northern Arkansas. And then still tons of drought going on in Texas. The Four Corners region slowly improving as monsoon season really hits uh, high gear. And then we've still got extreme to exceptional droughts, parts of the San Joaquin Valley and parts of Nevada, all expecting some rain as we head uh, through the upcoming week. So something that we'll keep an eye on. But here's a look at the root zone again, staying uh, pretty much average here across the Mississippi uh, River Valley and up into the Great Lakes, but starting to dry out again across the east, mid-Atlantic up into the northeast, very dry from Kansas down south into Texas, and then much of the Rockies and back west towards uh, the San Joaquin Valley there and the Pacific Coast dealing with extremely dry conditions. And that is going to continue at least along the West Coast because look at this ridge as we head into this week, Tuesday, still seeing the heat and the humidity jet stream well to the north. But watch what happens as we head towards the end of the week. That ridge really starts to extend northward into southern parts of Canada, bringing that heat and 
and humidity farther to the north and even into next weekend the ridge continues to grow right through the middle of the country and we're expecting uh, temperatures that could be 10 to 15 degrees above average for most of the lower 48 as we head through the upcoming week. Still looking at chances for rain though on Monday that's going to be in the east still with these fronts moving eastward still hot and humid in the south hot and dry in the west except for where we've got those afternoon thunderstorms here and some of which could be on the heavier side especially for parts of New Mexico Colorado and Arizona otherwise we've got sunshine in the Pacific Northwest heading into Wednesday August 3rd hot and humid across the south again sunny through the middle of the country more showers and thunderstorms off in the west and then we've got more of those afternoon pop-up storms in the southeast as well then as we head into Friday much of the same back in the west more of the pop-up showers and thunderstorms during the afternoon another system moving across the Great Lakes could bring a little bit more shower activity and more of those afternoon thunderstorms down across the south. Temperatures this week, though, much above average, about 10 to 15 degrees above average for most of the Corn Belt and center part of the country and below normal where we've got those showers and storms in the west. And then the precipitation look this week below normal right through the middle of the country, but where we've got some of those showers and storms in the west, we'll see more of that precipitation and then above normal in parts of Tennessee as well. And August as a whole looking extremely warm, that ridge not going anywhere, and we're going to keep tracking that uh, here and we'll have have more for you next week. Time back to you. Thank you, Matt. We'll keep a close eye on weather because it is that August forecast that sent soybeans soaring this week. We will get the latest from Matt Bennett and Naomi Bloom next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Naomi Bloom as well as Matt Bennett joining us. Well, what an interesting week in the markets. I mean, you look at the past couple weeks, some ugly market action when it comes to, to grains and, and oil seeds. But Naomi, this week we really saw soybean prices take off. What fueled the market? The biggest indicator of this rally has absolutely been the heat that's come back into the forecast and the minimal amounts of rain, along with the fact that, you know, right after Ukraine, Russia made that deal, Russia came back in and did some bombing. So the market got spooked to see if could those grains that grain vessels that needed to leave the Black Sea region, could they actually leave? So the combination of those two things, along with an oversold market technically, was enough to fuel the market to have the grain prices work higher. Now heading into the weekend, we're up against some very significant resistance levels. So people should take note of that. We've had a nice rally uh, considering where we were just a week ago. So take advantage of this for some cash sales. Yeah, when you look at that heat, and we just had the forecast from uh, meteorologist Matt Urasovic, and that heat coming up in, in August does look brutal, Matt, but brutal enough to justify the major spike in soybean prices that we saw this week? Well, again, as Naomi said, we were oversold to begin with. And then you start looking at this bean situation as a whole. Obviously, old crop uh, carryout is just tight. You know, new crop carryout's pretty darn tight. You didn't get the acreage that you wanted to get this year. And then the bean crop went in the ground late. So you throw all those things together, and basically, you're hoping and praying for a really good August weather pattern. Uh, a lot of folks, I think, have indicated to us uh, that the corn crop looks better, relatively speaking, than the bean crop. And that is uh, pretty much across the board that we've heard that. And so, you know, you come in here and you get 100 to 110, 110 plus temperatures over the next uh, couple of weeks. You know, the first 10 days of August are predicted to be brutal. And I've got to think that that really calls into question uh, whether we can even hit 
a 50 bushel crop on a national basis, let alone 51.5, you start talking about a sub 50 crop, uh, and that's certainly potentially in the cards, uh, that gets you in an extremely tight situation. Yeah, Naomi, when we had Brian Grady on the show last weekend, you know, in Iowa, he's saying, listen, the crop looks really good as far as the corn crop goes. We could still have the potential here for a record corn yield. I mean, when you hear stories like that, but then you also see some of these reports where that crop is, is barely hanging on when it comes to corn. Um, do you think there is any chance that the corn leads the rally or is it going to continue to be soybeans here short term? Uh, short term, I think that they both equally can justify the prices where they are at this moment right now. There's no question it's not a perfect crop out there. But remember, every year it's not a perfect crop. There's always places within the country that are suffering drought or have suffered too much rain. And so we see that every year. Now, the one thing I want folks to also remember is that coming up on that August 12th USDA report, the USDA has the ability to change and tweak the acre numbers for planted acres. It's not something that they normally do. But because it was a late planted spring, they're going to be able to do that on this upcoming report. So my thought is that we see acre numbers adjusted. We see the yield adjusted. It might come down a little bit, but usually when we see that type of activity, all of a sudden demand starts to go away and that offsets a potentially smaller crop. So at the end of the day, I don't know that ending stocks are going to get a lot smaller because there can be that demand adjustment, but seasonally take note that oftentimes starting at the beginning of August for two to three weeks, November soybean futures and December corn futures do have a tendency to work a little bit lower till we get into that harvest low. If we come in Sunday night and the weather forecast has changed, there's maybe not as much heat or they put in some precipitation, you're gonna see that marketplace start to dwindle down. Outside markets are sensitive with the recession talk. So my tone is a little bit more defensive than normal from what people would hear from me but I am very much mindful of those outside market indicators as well. Yeah, Matt, when you look at what the commodity markets can do, like we saw the past couple of weeks, and then you see this rally that we saw this week, should farmers be adjusting their game plan based on that? Yeah, I mean, and so Naomi says that uh, you know, she's not uh, talking maybe as uh, friendly as what she normally would. And I think that a producer, if they hear me or Naomi or any of us analysts say that we think we need to step forward with some sales, you know, that we're probably going to be accused of being bearish. But uh, the simple fact of the matter is just because you're making a sale doesn't mean that you're bearish. It means that you're smart, in my opinion. Uh, you get a buck and a quarter rally on November beans in a week's time frame. Uh, just back up to a week ago, and a lot of folks were worried that we were going to be heading to uh, a lot of $12 type bean prices. And uh, those aren't necessarily horrible prices, but obviously our cost factors have gone up so much here in 2022 that uh, uh, it's not something that you want to see. And so I guess you got to be mindful of the fact that your profitability this week with 50 cent rally in corn uh, and a buck and a quarter in beans has gone up substantially. Uh, I, I would reward the market. You don't see weeks like this very often. And uh, by all means, you don't see them uh, when several folks, quite frankly, have had good weather patterns. Well, bean basis seems to be a little bit different than corn basis. So we need to talk about that. Plus contracting cattle supplies. We'll go over it all coming up later on U.S. Farm Report. The Canadian government is proposing a plan to cut emissions from fertilizer use in agriculture by 30% by 2030, farmers warn that it will come at the cost of grain production in Canada as the world is scrambling to find supplies. But in other parts of the world, farmers are also at odds with the government, igniting protests and calls for change. Here's John Phipps. 
as if record-breaking heat wasn't enough to trigger tempers, Europe, and especially the Netherlands, have been dealing with an increasingly incendiary political situation, pitting the nation's farmers against EU government plans to decrease greenhouse gas emissions by half by 2030. The major target is nitrous oxides, of which agriculture contributes about half. But Dutch farmers, who are an ag exporting power behind only the U.S., contend those efforts will force many producers out of business, perhaps as many as 30 percent, and that could be conservative. Protests, which began three years ago, have intensified, with tractor blockades and major roads and city centers. In addition, farmers are demanding more positive media coverage and, predictably, more government aid. They are also pointing fingers of blame at other EU countries and home companies like Shell and Tata Steel. Unusually for Europe, a few shots have been fired by police at protesters, but most of the demonstrations were relatively orderly, if angry. All this resentment and outrage by farmers faces two formidable hurdles to resolution. The first is the common agricultural policy, whose large subsidies to agriculture has made them essentially dependent on them. Now add in the series of heat waves which have been scorching the continent with growing frequency over the last two decades, and is now setting all-time records this summer across Europe. With environmental political parties like the Greens possessing considerable clout and not enough air conditioning, public opinion has not been overwhelmingly sympathetic to farmers. Dutch farmers are noted for their professional and business skill, but due to their intense management, the carrying capacity for livestock like dairy cows, in their country at least, has likely been met or maybe even exceeded. That's why you see Dutch emigres operating all over the world, including the U.S. While the Dutch protests have attracted the most attention, the EU emissions proposals threaten farmers across the block. Given the economics and politics of this debate, however, a difficult transition for producers seems inevitable. Thanks, John. All right, when we come back, we check in with Machinery Pete, who has this week's Tractor Tales. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This is for you Farmall fans. We're headed to Indiana to check out Jerry Smoker's Gold Demonstrator 1026. This is an International Harvester 1026 Gold Demonstrator, 1970. Why is it gold? It was a promotion by International Harvester Corporation to introduce a new line of tractors, and they painted them gold and let dealers order them. A lot of dealers ordered quite a few. Uh, some dealers didn't order any because part of the deal was that they had to be painted red before they could be retailed. I brought it back to the, the color it is today. Uh, mainly cosmetic work on this tractor. Originally they said it was a, a Cadillac gold, but Cadillac never used that gold paint till 1972. So, <laughs> who knows? I take it to plow days and things like that, but mostly parade and 
and shows. There's a lot of them out there. Uh, they're pretty popular. They're quite collectible. Uh, prices have went up on them a lot since I've done this one. I did this one in 2009, and uh, it's gotten real popular since then. Thanks, Greg. Well, the drought has created a dire situation in parts of Texas, and the economic scars could be felt for years to come. We'll tell you why next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Welcome back this weekend. Well, farmers across West Texas and the Texas Panhandle have battled drought all year. The dry land crop has dwindled down to pretty much nothing. And what's irrigated is either already considered a loss or barely hanging on. And as farmers try to push through what could be the worst drought that they've ever seen, the economic scars on farms and communities could last a lifetime. This is going to leave a scar, going to leave a mark that's good, uh, that guys are going to remember forever. An aerial snapshot of Hale County, Texas tells the story best. Most of our area right now is in a, in a D4 drought, the highest level that we uh, that the drought low, that the drought monitor actually uh, measures. Todd Straley manages Quarterway Gen in Plainview, Texas, an area that's known for cotton. We expected at the beginning of the season with the acres that I had planted reported to me, we should have been we should have been ginning somewhere just slightly over 100,000 bales this year. What it looks like today is we're going to be somewhere between 15 and 20,000. The last time the crop looked this poor was the devastating drought of 2011, and this year the crop is worse. I can tell you in 2011, this particular gin did 40,000 bales in 2011. Stephen Ebling says as a farmer, 2011 still stings. I remember it very vividly. I spent every day building fence and moving cows. But he says 2022 may be worse. In 2011, we had more water capacity than what we do now. Um, whether it was smart or not, we were able to push a crop in 2011 and make that crop. This year, our aquifers played to the point I, we, we, we've turned this into a salvage operation already, and that's not good before cotton already blooms that we're trying to salvage a crop. Evelyn admits farming here is never easy. Is it hot and dry and windy? Absolutely. Do we live in West Texas and expect that? You bet. Uh, this one's been exceptional. But 2022 has been a brutal blow to farmers trying to just make a crop. We don't have an acre of dry land left. It's all been uh, failed out. Most of it never even sprouted. It's pretty sad. Most of this crop's already starting to give it up and uh, never really even had a fighting chance. It's not just the drought that's been unbearable for the crops here, but also the heat. The National Weather Service says so far this year, Lubbock, Texas has seen 29 days with temps above 100 degrees. 16 of those came in July. The only plants that are green or even alive around here are under a pivot. Evelyn still hopes to salvage 80% of his irrigated crop, which is much better than other farmers around here. But the recent triple digit heat means the number of irrigated fields that may fail this year will more than likely grow. I like to make a crop. Um, that's why I farm. I enjoy growing a crop. It makes me feel good. That's what gets me up in the morning. It is an absolute last resort to have to turn off of a crop. Texas Tech economist Darren Hudson says it's stories like this playing out across the high plains. It, it's horrible. Um, I, I don't know that there's any other way to describe it. As crop prospects dwindle by the day, the dryland crop is already gone, just like it was in 2011. 
What we're seeing now, I think, is perhaps more troubling um, is there are a lot of irrigated acres that have been plowed up. Uh, it just, it's just not worth it to take it to harvest. Hudson says USDA was aggressive in its July forecast, putting current U.S. cotton abandonment now at 32 percent, which is the third highest on record. I think the abandonment number that USDA is working with at this point is, is probably far too low. Um, for this region. As he says, farmers are making decisions daily about fields that are too far gone to try to save. You know, we had 2011 and then we're following it up, you know, 10, 11 years later with another catastrophic failure. We've had a few droughts in between. Um, you know, we've uh, gens that aren't opening at all this year. Um, we've got some gens that are, you know, combining efforts. It's the infrastructure piece of the puzzle that is troubling for economists and communities here. Texas accounts for 42% of U.S. cotton production, and the majority of that is grown around Lubbock, which is known as the largest cotton patch in the U.S. We're looking, you know, in probably uh, billions of dollars worth of, of, of lost economic activity for the region. Straley understands how vital cotton is to not only this gen, but the entire community. This drought is going to have a huge impact on, on West Texas and Texas in general for for, well, for our entire lifetime. His gen is in strong enough financial shape to weather the storm this year, but he's making changes because the crop just isn't there. Instead of running for three and four months, 24 hours a day, more than likely I will run for one month and just run one shift, one 12 hour shift. He says from fewer jobs to the repairs that he won't do on this gen, the drought is doing major damage to the infrastructure in these small towns. These cotton gins, we don't have an in, we don't have insurance. We don't have anything that uh, that kind of keeps uh, keeps our our coffers full um, and keeps us keeps us going. As farmers weigh what to do with the crops barely hanging on, water remains a precious commodity here. This was the most productive area probably in the U.S. when we had water. Um, then my granddad put in sprinklers and my dad ran sprinklers and now I'm taking out sprinklers. Um, and it's an evolution that uh, doesn't look very good from the outside, but it is what it is. Water that's not only growing more scarce, but also more expensive. Our price per inch of water in this area has probably doubled in the last five years to the point that some of this water becomes, is it even economically valuable? Uh, to water it or do you just shut it off? It's a decision that many farmers here may still be forced to make. If we don't get a rain in the next 30 days, we're going to have to go through that decision again. As this drought is nothing short of depressing. Maybe one of the largest challenges in agriculture, honestly, is the weather impacts and, and the market impacts on our mental health. It's concerns about farmers' mental health that could be the biggest issue for Texas farmers this year. I try to call all of my farmers every couple of weeks and just have a mental health checkup. A simple phone call is something Straley started doing as the reality of the drought set in. It really helps these guys to kind of get out of their head a little bit and remember that there is a world outside of the stress that they're living in in the moment. A string of phone calls that come with a vital reminder and a time when many here feel helpless and hopeless staring at these brown and barren fields. Now, it's important to remember that you are not alone. There is a new mental health and suicide support hotline. You can now call or even text the numbers 988. It went into effect earlier this month. Again, that number is 988. And we're thinking about everyone who's battling that drought right now. Okay, when we come back, Matt and Naomi join me again to talk markets. Stay with us.
Welcome back, Naomi and Matt Bennett joining us again. Well, Naomi, when you look at bases, I mean, soybean bases definitely telling a different story than corn bases. Really, what's at play? Yeah, what we're seeing is um, bases widen out in some parts of the country that you wouldn't expect it to. In some other places, it's staying firm. So the market is trying to suggest in some capacity, you know, where there's demand, there's going to be the strong demand, and that's likely going to continue all the way to harvest. And then those other places, the market is really saying, whoa, let's kind of slow down a little bit. I think we're going to see those indicators show up on the next USDA report as they tweak various types of the demand equation um, going forward. So as producers, what you want to be mindful of, keep track of the basis. Is it widening out? Is it narrowing? The market in your local place is trying to tell you what you should be doing with any grain you have on hand and even potentially with what you should be doing with forward contracting. Yeah, Matt, when you look at these basis levels across the country, what is it telling you? The interesting thing when it comes to basis is that over the last couple of weeks, you know, we've kind of before this week, we've leaked off on prices, uh, both corn and beans. It's no secret that uh, we were struggling to find any buyers in here. And so, you know, the bean basis was widening out at the same time that the board was going down. It's a horrible sign, especially this time of year, because a lot of times whenever you see the board heading lower, uh, you know, some of these folks have to go out there and source these beans. They've got to bid up to get them. And quite frankly, they weren't doing so. And so I think there's a couple of different things going on. First of all, there's not a whole lot of beans available. You know, and then second of all, I think some of these crushers look out towards margins once new crop beans are about to arrive and they see really good margins. And it's kind of similar to a year ago where some of these soybean crushers, I, I think, are kind of backing away from the table, at least for the time being, not really wanting to chase things around too much. But the simple fact of the matter, when you looked at August beans this last week, uh, there's no doubt that some of these folks are going out there and trying to secure some supplies as August is getting ready to go into delivery. So it's been a pretty interesting dynamic that we've seen unfold. But by all means, basis has certainly uh, told a lot of the tale. And unfortunately, we lost enough in basis that this huge rally uh, for cash beans actually didn't mean quite as much as what uh, producers would have liked to have seen it. Right. Now, I mean, before we move over to cattle, when you look at the futures price action that we've seen, you know, we, we've talked a lot about how the funds really were exiting and that's why we saw that massive drop and they were kind of sitting on the side, sidelines. So did they get back in or are they still on the sidelines? Well, for the most part, they've been maybe buyers of just a little bit on this recent rally, but not the large-scale buying that we had seen previously, nor are they selling things off. So they're kind of just sitting and waiting and watching. They don't have a reason to fully sell off and go short into the marketplace, but at the same time, they are concerned and they're watching outside market news, outside market influences, keeping an eye on crude oil prices. And I think they also keep an eye on seasonals as well. They might be waiting for more signs of a harvest low before they come back in, but I can tell you they're not coming in and buying in mass. And that is going to also be a reason that grain prices might stay on the defensive for the short term. Uh, we are seeing open interest actually declining. And so with the recent rally is maybe more of a weaker rally when open interest is declining. So I'm, again, still a little bit more cautious and we want to keep an eye on the funds. It'll be interesting to see the official numbers released Friday afternoon. Matt, when you look at the cattle side, we just had our Farm Journal report show you how devastating the drought has been for, for cotton but it's also been for cattle. We've seen the lines at the livestock auctions. You know, some of these these folks, they're forced to sell their cattle right now. Do, do we have an accurate picture? Do we know how much contraction is taking place right now with the U.S. cattle herd? Well, the unfortunate reality is that uh, where, the, where we have a lot of cattle in this country, 
uh, that's where the drought is the worst. So you get into the Western Corn Belt, uh, you know, you get into the uh, Nebraska, Kansas, down into the Panhandle of Texas, obviously, in the West of Texas. And there's no doubt there's a ton of cattle in that part of the world. Uh, and so your pasture is drying up because obviously you're not able to catch the rainfall you'd like to see. A lot of those folks are trying to figure out a way to get rid of cattle just simply because they can't feed them. And so uh, whenever you have a lot of folks in one part of the world trying to get rid of cattle, unfortunately, the price isn't going to be a fantastic price. And so, you know, we've heard of a lot of producers actually in my part of the world trying to find cattle uh, to bring to areas where we've actually had a fair amount of rainfall. So it's very worrisome. It's, it's a tough road to hoe. But I do think once you get past some of this, uh, whenever you get out into the winter time frame, I think cattle numbers suggest to me that you could see some excitement here. All right, Matt, Naomi, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. We appreciate it. Let's take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Registration is open for the 2022 Pro Farmer Crop Tour. Join our team as we gain insight on the 2022 growing season in person or online. Visit profarmercroptour.com forward slash register to select the stop nearest you. Well, as prices for essentials like groceries continue to climb, millions of Americans are turning to food banks for relief. But now those life-saving resources are also facing critical shortages. Gabe Cohen tells us why. Thank you so much. Jean Vaccarino has turned to food banks after months of choosing between groceries and her heart medicine. I will probably be homeless by next year because of the rent has tripled. She says she's been living on disability for the past few years, making it harder to make ends meet. I can't buy clothes. I can't buy for my grandchildren. You can't buy anything. You know, it's, it's day to day and you just hope and pray for the best. With rising inflation, the average American is spending nearly $500 more per month, including 78 more on food toughest for those living paycheck to paycheck. In a June poll, 60% of lower income households said grocery prices were a major problem. So millions are turning to food banks for help. Some pantries say they're serving 50% more people than a year ago. Long lines in Phoenix mirror the worst days of the pandemic. In San Antonio, one third of these people are here for the first time. These are families that are working but they are just not making enough to put food on the table at the end of the day. Sometimes it's uh, stressful and a struggle. Jessica Yingling works at a nursing home, but she and her son still need this Maryland pantry. Everything's more expensive and you're making the same amount that you're making before. Bill Murphy is picking up meals for veterans. It'll mean uh, survival, uh, bottom line. Demand is skyrocketing as the government scales back COVID assistance programs and donations from the USDA and grocery stores plummet, stretching food banks to the brink. They don't have surplus, well, then it cuts our supply. In Ohio, warehouses are drained. They say it's the worst shortage in years and pantries are rationing food to stay afloat. Few banks can afford to buy supply to fill the gap and even that is getting far pricier. America is transitioning from a pandemic crisis to a hunger crisis. The worst case scenario is that food banks will have to continue to wind down and even shut down food distributions that are vital lifelines for communities across this country. 
Now, Feeding America is asking Congress to increase funding to the Emergency Food Assistance Program and for USDA to send more supplies to food banks. There are reports that food banks in some places are on the brink of shutting down. All right, up next, are tariffs adding to some of those costs that we're seeing? Customer support is next. Well, would removing tariffs lower the prices on goods that you buy? That's customer support this week. From Gary McIntyre in Hawkeye, Iowa. Can you please explain how tariffs placed on goods coming from one country into another really work? I understand the U.S. has over 500 tariffs on various products coming from China currently. It is being considered to drop it down to the 300 range. Was some objective met that some tariffs might be canceled? Also, wouldn't tariffs contribute to inflation? Gary, this is amazing, but I was just thinking about revisiting my tariff ag explainer from 2018 when the tariffs on Chinese products were enacted by President Trump. Well, the spoiler is this. Tariffs are taxes paid by buyers, Americans consumers, not sellers in China. There weren't any checks from the Chinese Treasury to ours, only higher prices, especially for consumer goods. The effects were almost exactly what economists of all flavors warned, and none of them were beneficial. The trade imbalance did not improve, for example. Now, I'm going to try to update our tariff scorecard and report soon, but today just address the tariff contribution to inflation. Economists and econometricians, the numbers people, have struggled to come up with estimates of all kinds of the economic effects due to the unprecedented and lingering COVID influence on world business. COVID disrupted the oil industry from top to bottom and prompted governments to provide massive amounts of assistance to prevent an outright recession or even a global depression. Those two factors most likely caused the bulk of retail price increases, but recent research indicates tariffs added from 0.3 to a full 2% to those headline numbers. Removing the tariffs could lower prices on a wide range of consumer goods like electronics, appliances, and clothing, and tons of products with Chinese sub-assemblies. Much will depend on unkinking the supply chain, which actually seems to be occurring as ocean freight rates have returned to pre-pandemic ranges. That's just one indicator. That said, one development may lessen this desired price drop. Along with supply chains of every kind, profit inflation is now one of the big drivers. Consumers are conditioned to expect inflation, and we're still wary of supply problems, so there's an opportunity to increase margins, and it's hard for retailers to pass up. There's another bonus to removing tariffs, reciprocal removal of Chinese tariffs on goods we export to them, like, oh, I don't know, ag products. We'll make sure to get John's commentary posted on agweb.com and shared on our Facebook and Twitter pages. You can also now find U.S. Farm Report on Instagram. Well, when we come back, an iconic sculpture crafted from only the finest butter around. It's the big reveal of this year's Butter Cow next. Mm -hmm. 
It's the moment you've all been waiting for. Okay, maybe not everyone, but the American Dairy Association Mid-East revealed the 2022 butter cow sculpture this week. And with it being the first time since 2019 that the butter cow is back at the Ohio State Fair, this year it's a tribute to tradition. The big reveal showed this year's sculpture that featured kids showing their animals, which includes the traditional butter cow and calf that's always in the display. But this marks the first time that other show animals are featured in that iconic sculpture. It is exciting that this is the first time that we have other farm animals in the display. Over the years, we've had other animals like snakes and ladybugs and deer, um, but this is truly the first time we've ever had other farm animals join the cow and calf. Now you may be thinking, wow, that's a lot of butter. It is. So just how much butter is used? Well, 2,530 pounds of butter was used this year, making it the largest butter cow ever displayed at the Ohio State Fair. Go big or go home. I can stand behind that. That does it for this weekend on U.S. Farm Report. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to tune in next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.